So I'm reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be made known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. I was uh, reading an article this week, you might have seen it too, about how there was a group coming back from the Mardi Gras in Sydney when they were attacked by another group who drove along in a car and who threw eggs out the window at them and, and kind of left them feeling mocked and, and shaken. And, um, and the group in the car sped off laughing to themselves. And you think, how does a group of people in that car think that that's okay? How do they justify that kind of behavior? That even though, you know, just because they think differently of, of their lifestyle or something like that, that they can do something like that. But there in that mob situation, in that group situation, they think it's okay. They justify it. Read the news and, and it's full of stories like this, isn't it? You know, most stories that you come across in the news seems to be individuals or groups of people who are justifying all sorts of behaviours that aren't right. Right now, or at least in the last kind of week, 
There's been all sorts of stories in the news of kind of Me Too type stories. Uh, But it's not just the entertainment industry, it seems, that is guilty of of justifying terrible kind of behaviours to women. It seems there's individuals and maybe even others, groups within our own parliament, guilty of it as well. Or reading the news, um, look at the news and you see stories, all sorts of stories, full of racism, particularly in the news recently is Collingwood Football Club, where individuals and groups justify what's not right. Look at Trumpism, storming the Capitol building, and you see individuals and groups feeling fully justified in their actions. It's depressing, isn't it? I find it so sad when you open up the news and you see story after story of this. It's unsettling. It's kind of like a little bit disturbing to think I'm releasing my four kids into that world. Look at domestic violence and stories that we see there, things that we just can't seem to eradicate. Individual greed and corporate greed. It's upsetting. Things are not right. But all these people wanting to justify them. And I don't know about you, but the solutions that that you read that people seem to come up with, they don't seem to fill me with much confidence either. Like at the moment, they're talking about the solution of educating school children around sexual consent. And I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence that that's fully going to fix things. Because is there actually a deeper problem that sits behind this that's not so easily fixed? Or will increase policing around domestic violence or even uh, making it a criminal uh, action to have coercive control over another person, will that fix the problem? They're probably good steps, but still I don't hold a lot of confidence that they're going to get to the heart of the problem. Sometimes it feels like in the news there's just longer and longer lists of things being called out, things that are not right, things that humans want to justify. But for everything that's called out, it feels like there's 10 more things just waiting in the wings to stand in their place. Where does all this come from? Well, what we see in the part of the Bible that was just read us today is that all these sorts of things, they ultimately come from the same place. They're all just part of a a far bigger problem, a problem that touches each one of us because it's not a a problem that's, that's just out there somewhere. It's actually a problem that starts within each one of us and lies within each one of us. What we see today is that no one stands righteous in themselves before God. No one. Last week, you might remember that we saw Paul, he said he's proud to share the gospel message. He's proud to share it because it shows us how we can be righteous before God. But in in order for us to see why that's such momentous good news, we actually first need to see why we're not righteous before God in and of ourselves. And that's Paul's first big point. His, His big point in this letter Uh, in the beginning of this letter, is that we're not righteous in in and of ourselves. And this point is so big that it goes all the way into uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking it a bit more. But we get a kind of summary of Paul's point over this section. 
in verse 18. Have a look at it again with me. Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So this is our our first point today. God's anger is being revealed against human unrighteousness. We need God's righteousness to be revealed because right now God's anger is being revealed. Now, most people don't like the idea of an angry God, do they? Most people, they haven't altogether given up on the idea of God, but they have instead embraced a kind of different understanding of God that that's more comfortable and more appealing. You know, so you'll hear people say things like, I believe God's there, I just don't think that he'd be the type of God who'd get angry. But if we go down this track, the problem is we're depersonalizing God. Think about what we're actually saying to God. We're saying, I, I believe you're there, but I also believe I can reject certain aspects of you that I just don't like because I don't like them. Imagine if we acted like that towards you know, our kids or our partner. It's not right to create our own version of someone in, in our mind and then interact with them as if that invention of them is true. No one likes to be treated that way. I mean, try saying to your boss, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to live as if you're happy with that. Unless you've got an incredibly weak, dysfunctional boss, that's just never going to work. And even more so, it's never going to work with God. Because God's anger doesn't just come from his right to judge. God's anger also comes from his love. Have you ever uh, seen a a family that's been torn apart by a child that refuses to listen to their parents? You know, they've got in with a group of friends, maybe got into drugs as well, and partying and and breaking the law. And what you see is they often start doing stuff that endangers the safety of the rest of the family. Like they invite their friends around, and sometimes their friends are even more out of control than they are. And they invite them round when you're not there, but sometimes when your other kids are there. How do you reckon a parent feels in that situation? There's sadness, there's love, but I tell you what, there comes a time when there's also anger, a deep and profound anger that in their petty selfishness, they've exposed their brothers and sisters to who knows what. Things that could destroy their lives forever. Now, God's anger, it comes from love. And he he reveals it to us clearly, still out of love. He's not passive-aggressive, God. He's not sending mixed messages. He's angry. And we read here who his anger is very clearly directed towards. Look again at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, God, he's not indifferent about human lack of reverence for him. He's not indifferent about human lack of righteousness towards how we treat each other. We might justify these things to ourselves, and we do, but he is personally offended by them. 
And he's angry at the way that we have to suppress the truth in order to justify these things to ourselves. You know, if you've had any experience with a teenager like I was talking about before who's gone off the rails, what do they usually say about what they're doing? Well, they say all sorts of things that suppress the truth. I actually had a a sister who fell in with... um, with some wrong some people who were not really good for her at all uh my sister she was using drugs she was abusing alcohol and you know when my parents found the garden hose cut up and cigarette holes in the carpet from obviously and an awful lot of rubbish in the bin from obviously a a crazy party what sort of things do you think that she said well i can still remember it's not my problem you're the problem You've got stupid ideas that just don't work and unrealistic expectations. What I'm doing is harmless. Everyone does it. And other parents don't care. It's fine. And you know what? You don't love me anyway. You know, but that kind of suppression of the truth, that's not just something that teenagers who are going off the rails do. It's actually pretty close to what it means to be human now. We sense the truth, don't we? But then we convince ourselves why what we want to do is actually the right thing for us to do. Now, I've been talking as if what Paul's writing about at this point in the letter applies to all of us, but but is that actually right? Does this apply to all of us? It's worth us actually just pausing for a minute and just figuring that out. Is this actually rather some group out there somewhere that God's angry with? Or is this all non-Jews, all Gentiles in the flow of the argument of the letter? Is that what Paul's talking about? Or is this, the way I'm talking, all people? What we'll see over the next few weeks is that Paul's argument here is actually a bit like a dartboard. Right now, what Paul is doing, he's drawing that outer circle, the, the broadest possible circle that you can that includes all humanity. And in this this section that he's writing, he's making particularly sure that he includes people who who aren't God's people, Gentiles, as he'd call them, people who don't have the truth of the scriptures like the Jews did. But in the weeks to come, he draws more and more tighter and tighter circles, like a target, to show that what he's saying applies just as much to Jews who do have the scripture as it does to all people. But today what we see is that even people who don't have the truth of Scripture, who don't have that truth to guide them, even still, Paul says, they suppress the truth about God. So look at verse 19. He writes, They suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And we see how he's done that in the next verse. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. Look at the world and what can you see? Well, you can see that God is there. You can see that he's powerful, that he deserves to be acknowledged of God. You can't see much else about him, but that is more than enough. You see, God is not angry with anyone for what they don't know. 
Not at all. God is only ever angry at us for not being true to what we do know about him. He's angry at us for seeing the truth, no matter how big or how small it is, and then suppressing it. Every human can see that God is there and that he should be acknowledged as as God. But what does every human do with that knowledge? Well, verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Every one of us pushes the truth of God out of our minds so that we don't honor him like we should. We don't thank him like we should. And Paul then goes on to say that this self-delusion causes us to make three foolish exchanges. Look at the first one in verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And this is Paul talking about idolatry. We give up on the real God and we try to reduce him, represent him by something within the creation. And this leads us to the next exchange that we make in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We go from imagining God to be in the image of his creation to then serving created things instead of serving the one who created them. We tend to look down on idol worship as being kind of for primitive people and and not something that we'd ever do. We'd never worship idols, would we? And yet, isn't this actually what every single one of us does? Don't we so easily give created things the kind of love and devotion and place in our lives that really should only be given to the Creator? And it's not only idol worshippers and and spiritual people who give created things the place of God in their lives. It's all people, agnostics and atheists do exactly the same. Imagine you have five people round for dinner and you put on an absolutely amazing feast, roast beef and potatoes. Yep, I've lost you now, you're hungry. Now, you know, you, you bring out the meal and one of your guests says, Thank you, McDonald's. You're amazing. That's offensive, right? There you are, smiling, happily, putting down what you've made in front of them. And they say, thank you, McDonald's. I'd be offended. But then another, another one of the guests says, no, thank you, me. Really, this has come to me because I am just so wonderful and great. Also offensive, wouldn't you say? A little bit like dinner at our house with the kids. But anyway, that's another story. But another guest says, no, guys, that's offensive. Thank you, potatoes. You have absorbed the energy from the sun so beautifully, shed your skin, rolled yourself in oil, and baked yourself to crispy golden perfection. Still offensive. Another guest says, I've got no idea who to thank, actually, and I'm okay with that. Offensive. And finally, another guest says, don't be stupid, guys. There is no one to thank. Offensive. Now, I'm I'm being silly, of course, but, but this is what we do to God on a grand scale. Only it's not really funny. 
That's what idol worship is. It's what being vaguely spiritual or super spiritual is. It's what agnosticism is. It's what atheism is. It's extremely offensive to God. But when that's pointed out to us, what are we likely to say? Well, we're likely to say, well, God, if you're not happy with that, you should have made yourself clearer. But that's not the problem. The problem is that no matter how clear God makes himself, we will still suppress the truth. And so Paul says in verse 20, people are without excuse. So we've seen that God's anger is being revealed against human unrighteousness. We've seen that human unrighteousness is inexcusable. Well, next, as we work through this, what we see is what God is going to do about it or what God is actually already doing about it. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God's response is to give us over to what we've chosen over him. Now, you might sort of wonder, though, why is Paul suddenly talking about sex here? Why does he go from talking about suppressing the truth to idolatry to sex? What's the connection? The idea is when we're ruled by God, these desires that we have are nothing but pure, amazing gifts from him. But when we reject his rule by embracing the rule of created things, well, then we become more and more ruled by the desires of our hearts, which are degrading to us. We're made in the image of God. So when you distort God into something within creation or into an image, we distort ourselves too. We're made in his image. Distort God, we distort ourselves. Sex is is such an integral part of of who we are and it's created for such a, a, a powerful relational purpose that one of the key ways that we express our distortion in the end is in our distortion of sex. Reject God, reject his way and more and more we become ruled by our desires just like the animals. And don't we see this in our world? This very thing, I mean, again, when we read the news, there are far, far too many stories about the awful distortions of sex that we come across. But the ones that we we read about in the news, they're not the only kind of distortions. In fact, there's a whole heap of distortions of sex that our culture is is pretty comfortable with. One of the distortions of sex that we hear all the time from our culture is that life is all about sex. I mean, look at the TV, books, ads, just conversations, social media, even subjects at university. The message is often that life is really about sex. So often we hear that that life is found in fulfilling your heart's desires and as long as there's consent, then it's all fine. But meanwhile, that message distorts sex distorts people because even with consent we can degrade each other and reduce people made in the image of God to be people made for my pleasure 
The truth that, that most people don't want to hear is that sex without commitment cannot escape, that at its heart it's about using people. An example of this is pornography. What does human wisdom in our culture say? Well, it says it's just harmless fun. Have you noticed that? TV, all sorts of things, just people's conversation. It's seen as entirely normal and natural. But the truth is that it's destructive. It's degrading to everyone. It's harmful to relationships. And even science is starting to show this now. It's shameful. And yet it's enormously prevalent in our society. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And what happens? We end up living a lie. And God gives us over to our delusions. Now at this point, Paul talks about a third thing that we exchange that comes from rejecting God. Look at verse 26. We read, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. That's what we've started to see already. But now Paul gives us a particular example that illustrates this. He writes, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, this is incredibly hard for us to hear these days. We feel the pressure to say homosexuality is fine, don't we? We want to say love is love and God is okay with this. But that's human wisdom. Paul, he's completely contradicting the wisdom of our day here. But you know what? This is actually him completely contradicting the wisdom of his day as well. But can, can you see that that's exactly his point? Paul is saying that the kind of thinking that says same-sex sexual expression is fine is actually what we should expect. In one sense, it's completely normal. It's a clear example of where our rejection of God takes us. See, does God have the right to tell me how to live sexually? Does he? Well, if I reject God, then of course that will lead me to exchange his design for my design. And if we're hearing right now that this is all about homosexuality, then we're actually hearing it wrong. Sam Albury, who's a minister who's same-sex attracted, but he doesn't live out that attraction, he puts it brilliantly. He says, none of us are straight in our sexuality. None of us. We're all bent in our sexuality. All of us have got desires that aren't right. None of us are in a position to judge anyone else, as we'll see over the next few weeks. This is not a passage about condemning homosexuals. This is actually a passage about how all of us have condemned ourselves. And this is such a hard issue for us today. And um, I'm especially thinking of you guys who are under 20 or or in your 20s. I really feel for you guys because there's just so much pressure on you. And it's so confusing. You get told, don't you, that modern ways of thinking tell us that homosexuality is fine fine for Christians as well you get told modern ways of thinking tell us that sex before marriage is fine fine for Christians as well 
But let me tell you, that's not modern day thinking. Can you see it in this passage? That's ancient thinking. That's exactly the kind of thinking that Paul is talking about. Now, don't hear this wrong, though. God is not more against homosexuality than he is against sex before marriage or outside of marriage or greed or drunkenness or gossip or envy. But at the same time, do get this clear. Just like God labels all of those things unrighteousness, he says exactly the same thing about homosexuality. And we find this so hard to hear, so hard to accept. Why? Well, it's for lots of reasons. But at its heart, it's because we're not willing in our hearts really to let God be God. We all want to suppress the truth. And this is the exact point of the next section. We all give up caring about what God thinks. And so we look, um, we look to all sorts of other ways of living and look at the sorts of things that God gives us over to. It's not that we do all of these things all the time, by the way. It's that at any point, any of us could do these things. Verse 29, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And as we hear that list, we probably think some of them aren't that big a deal. In fact, what we love is to have other people join us in thinking that way too. It's like we want buddies on death row. Look at verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also to approve of those who practice them. Now, this paints a picture of humanity that's not great, is it? And individually... We're not as bad as we could be. But nonetheless, each and every one of us is unrighteous before God. And we don't have any excuse for that. The excuses that we come up with make us feel better, but they do nothing to change the fact that God has every right to be angry with us. Now, this is, of course, not all there is to say about humanity. It's absolutely not all there is to say about God. So much more that he feels for us than just anger. But the point is, we cannot brush aside his anger. It's real. He has the right to feel angry. And we are fully wrong to suppress the truth. And we're powerless to deal with his anger in ourselves. My sister, who I mentioned earlier, Occasionally, she actually uh, listens to my sermons online, which is quite a scary thought, really. And um, she thinks that I'm always mentioning her in sermons. She says, I know you're talking about me. But, you know, my sister, she's, she's actually an amazing woman. And I'm not just saying that because she might be listening right now. She has four amazing daughters now. She's married to a, a great husband. And thankfully, God spared her from from continuing down a path of self-destruction that that she was headed down. 
But you know, the truth is it took some pretty dark moments on that path for her to, to see where she was going. It, it took some pretty humiliating moments before she woke up to herself. It took some awful things before she stopped suppressing the truth and she saw the love of her family. One of those dark moments was, was the time that she stole money from her favorite uncle's wallet. He was visiting from Queensland and... and uh, It was just so uncomfortable for all of us. We all saw the truth. It was awful. And there was no escaping it. None of us liked it. But it was the humiliating moments like that that were turning points for my sister in the end. And we might not like what we see in in parts of the Bible here, which are being held up to us like a mirror. But they can be turning points for us. There's a truth here about ourselves that we need to see whether we want to or not. God is God. He's right to be angry. He is angry with us. So what are you going to do with that truth? What we should do is feel humility. But also we should feel wonder. Because as we're going to see across Romans as we keep working through it, God, he doesn't humiliate us in his anger. God's love actually leads him to lift us up out of our unrighteousness. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter who you are. Idol worshipper, gay, straight, whatever. Jesus humiliates himself at the cross in order to make the way for us to be righteous. We'll never be righteous before God in in ourselves no matter what we do, no matter who we are, what matters in the end and all that matters is that we turned to Jesus in faith. So let me finish with two quick things that we can take away from this today. So the first is this one, God's anger is real and it's urgent and if you've never done something about it, then you should. You should do something about it today. Now, there's nothing you can do to stop God being angry with you in and of yourself because there's no way that you can make yourself righteous before God. But what you can do is listen to the good news of the gospel, that God gives us a righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves but comes from what Jesus has done for us. We can be fully right in God's eyes through faith in Jesus. That is open to you. But the second quick thing to take away is if you already have that faith, then this has got huge implications for us too. It's got two implications at least that have got to do with humility. We have every reason to be humble before God, don't we? And part of that means being people who tell the truth about God and the truth that he reveals. We might look foolish in the eyes of the world, We might not look wise, but God reveals the right way to live and we need to listen to him. That's humility. You know, it's not up to us to think that we know better for ourselves or better for other people. And that means we can't be a people who label things that God calls sin as fine. And you know what? The pressure is just going to get greater and greater to do exactly that. Do you feel it? Well, it's going to get greater. But humility, humility before God won't let us do it. Whether it's sex before marriage or greed 
or gossip or homosexuality or drunkenness. We can't be people who say, well, those things are fine. Because that's not humility before God. That's arrogance. And it's cowardly. But there's another side to the coin of this humility as well. And that is we of all people should be the ones who see that we're not righteous in ourselves. We're no better than anyone else. Why is it that Christians are often known as the self-righteous, judgmental ones? Why is it that there's a truth in that accusation? Doesn't that sicken you? We are not self-righteous. Part of being humble toward God is being humble toward those who are around us, not pretending that we're better than other people, never thinking that what they need to do is follow our example, our lifestyle, our choices, our righteousness. What they need, what we all need, is a righteousness that we don't have in ourselves, a righteousness that we don't deserve, the righteousness that only comes to us through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are astounded that even though we rightly deserve your anger, that you don't humiliate us, that instead in Jesus you enter this world to deal with our unrighteousness, to present us right in your eyes. You lift us up, Lord. When we see the the depth of how much we had betrayed you and deserve your anger, we are astounded at the wonder of how high you have lifted us up. The depth of your love is so much deeper, Lord. We pray, Lord, that if we've never dealt with your anger, we would do that today, that we would put our faith in Jesus and be righteous in your eyes through him. But Lord, for those of us who have done that, help us to be humble before you, humble to receive your truth, whatever that might be, however uncomfortable that might be, but humble to love those around us who are in exactly the same boat as we are, not righteous before you in and of ourselves. Give us that humility, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.